Hey, and welcome to Vineyard Church Cardiff's podcast. It is great to have you with us. Today, Alice is finishing off our series, A Praying Life, that we have been in through Lent. We hope that this series has blessed and encouraged you, and I know that Alice's message will again today. So enjoy. Hello, today we are finishing up our series, A Praying Life. And this series has been part of our wider Live Like Jesus discipleship framework. You know, as a church, we want to make sure that we are continuing to grow in our discipleship to Jesus. You know, that we are transformed both for our sake and for the sake of this city and this nation. And in this series, we have been thinking specifically about what it means to be followers of Jesus that pray. You know, the disciples, they they looked at Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, And they saw the way he prayed, you know, the intimacy that he had with his father. They saw how Jesus would see what the father was doing and then how he would then partner with that. They saw the authority and the power of Jesus's kingdom ministry, you know, the miracles that were happening, the power of his teaching. And they wanted likewise. So the disciples approached Jesus and they're like, Rabbi, teach us to pray like you pray. Now, these men, these were men that prayed all the time. You know, prayer wasn't like this kind of new idea, this new concept to them. It wasn't that. It was that they wanted to pray the way that Jesus prayed. They wanted in on that. They wanted a praying life like Jesus's. And they come to him and they're like, Jesus, we want in on this. And as we finish up uh, this series today, my hope is, is that you would be like the disciples. You know, whether you're new to prayer, whether prayer is this kind of thing you've thought and done a lot of over the years, but you would be like, we want in on this. We want a praying life like that. It's true to say, isn't it? Often, uh, you know, when we kind of do hear talks on prayer, when we read books on prayer, when we hear stories of answered prayer, often that's our first response is, wow, I want in on that. That's what I want. But the reality is, is that feeling can often only carry us so far, you know, maybe a month or so down the road before it starts to wear off. But this series isn't just a kind of a praying month, (laughs) it's a praying life. I suppose the question then I would ask as we're finishing this series is what does it look like? What would it look like for you to live a life of prayer? Are you living a life of prayer? What would it look like for you to start to do that? You know, I often wonder why, if, if we really believe prayer changes things, and many of us do, why don't we do it then? You know, at least... Many of us might pray, but not in a way that is kind of deep and integral to our discipleship to Jesus. Why is it that church prayer meetings across the board are only attended by the faithful few? Why aren't we hungry to pray more and more and more? Well, there's probably lots of reasons for this. You know, one might be, you know, the fact that discipleship isn't easy. This is, a, you know, worked out over a lifetime. Often we try and do it in our own strength, not empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of, you know, that, that kind of journey that we're on. Another reason, you know, and I spoke about this last time, um, about unanswered prayer and the difficulty that can have of us. It can kind of make us feel a bit disillusioned with the whole idea. You know, that's another reason. But I think one reason that we often overlook is this. It's the spiritual resistance that comes when we pray. The spiritual resistance that would stop us from living a life of prayer, a praying life. You know, Rick Warren, an American pastor, says this, the devil likes to limit our prayers because he knows our prayers limit him. You know, as we get to the last part of the Lord's Prayer today, Jesus finishes the prayer, acknowledging this spiritual reality that we are in. And it's so important to understand this reality at play if we do indeed want to live prayer-filled lives. 
Pete Gregg says this, if you don't understand spiritual warfare, then you don't understand prayer. If you don't understand spiritual warfare, then you don't understand prayer. So we're going to unpack what this means a bit more today. Let's just remind ourselves of, of how Jesus responds to the disciples and what he teaches them when they ask him how to pray. This is Luke chapter 11. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Give us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. And then Matthew's version of this prayer adds the line at the end, um, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. You can translate that either way. Even with that extra bit of Matthew's line added on there, it might strike you that the Lord's Prayer ends rather abruptly. You know, I remember reading these verses for the first time in the Bible when I was a Christian, or maybe I was about 14, 15 years old, but I knew the words of the Lord's Prayer. You know, I'd been in a Church of England school. I had said the words of the Lord's Prayer time and time again. I could rattle it off and not think about it at all. Maybe many of you can relate to that. And I remember then getting to actually reading where Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer and being like, where's the end bit? Is there not a bit missing? You know, the, the extra bit, what happened to it? The bit that goes, you know, for the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. I was like, did the Bible miss it out? Well, no, the truth be told is that in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible, the most reliable manuscripts, the early church, the, the, that bit's not there. It would appear that the early church added it on later on, um, later on in time. I can understand why they did. <laughs> it kind of helps round the prayer off a little better, you know, it's like kind of smoother, um, a slightly smoother landing for the prayer. It's worth saying they didn't just kind of make up a random extra sentence and just kind of bung it on. They are quoting from the Old Testament. They're reaching back into the Old Testament here, quoting King David. King David, um, uh, he is about to start building the temple, the place where God's presence was going to dwell. And this is what King David prays before he starts building the temple. This is in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 11. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And it's thought the early church kind of took that um, and then reworked it and added it on the end of the Lord's Prayer. This moment where the great king, King David, he prayed this prayer, acknowledging that there was a king far more glorious, far more majestic, far more splendorous than he, King David, could ever be. And who was that king? God, Yahweh. And I think it's really significant that the early church kind of reached into the Old Testament in that way to add that bit onto the end of the Lord's Prayer. I think they identified a key theme that runs through the Lord's Prayer that is so easy to miss. You know, as you'll know, over this series, we have been breaking the Lord's Prayer down into its kind of component parts, a bit like kind of an engine in a car, dismantling it piece by piece and looking at each section, each piece in more detail. And, you know, that's a well-trodden path when it comes to looking at the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's really helpful because then when you put each bit back in, like putting an engine back together, not that I do that lots, but, you know, you get the idea. And when you put them back in, it's like you feel like, oh, I know how that bit works now. And I know how that bit works now. And I, and I get it. I hope that's your feeling as we've done the Lord's Prayer over the last few weeks. You think, oh, I get that a bit more. And I get what he means. That bit means now. But there is a downside to doing it this way. And it's this. You can end up seeing the Lord's Prayer as this kind of amalgamation of disparate ideas that then just sit separately from each other. And that's not what the Lord's Prayer is. The Lord's Prayer actually is one more that builds and builds and builds, each point building on the one before. And there is this central theme that runs throughout, a central theme, a central truth 
that Jesus wanted his disciples, wants us to have in mind as we pray, that should inform how we pray and why we pray and what we pray. And it's this, our God is king, but you can approach him as father. God is king, but you can approach him as father. And the early church, I think, understood this dynamic going on here, which is why they added on those words of King David here at the end of the prayer, his, King David's acclamation to that God was king. You know, the disciples here understood that the Lord's prayer at its heart is a kingdom prayer, a kingdom prayer that reflects the father heart of God. God is king, but you can approach him as father. Is that how you understand prayer? It massively affects our prayer life when we understand that basic teaching that Jesus is trying to get here across here through the Lord's Prayer. And so as Jesus finishes the prayer, and he kind of comes into land by saying, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's not this kind of random add-on where Jesus suddenly says, oh, and by the way, don't forget about the devil or anything like that. No, Jesus is building here on all that has been said before. You know, this prayer at its heart, as I said, is a kingdom prayer. And Jesus finishes the prayer by reminding his disciples of the fact that there are two kingdoms at play, the kingdom of God on one hand and the kingdom of darkness on the other. Jesus acknowledges that what's going on in the spiritual reality, the heavenly realms, is this clash of two kingdoms, a war going on that we can't see. And we are to pray with that in mind. To realise that prayer is a spiritual weapon in the spiritual battle that is going on. Which, as I said, is one of the reasons we find it so hard to do in any consistent deep way in our lives. But it is why we must not be distracted from doing so. Now, at this point, maybe you're new to church. Maybe if you're exploring faith, maybe you've just been around church for a while. But you're thinking, Alice, this is 2022. (laughs) Am I really supposed to believe that the devil is real, that there is this spiritual battle going on? You know, maybe you're like, "I'm, I'm all for the idea of Jesus and faith. But talking about spiritual forces of evil sounds a bit far-fetched, outdated, new age, mystical, basically just a bit weird. And I hear that. And the reason that might be your response is because the reality is that our Western worldview that we are surrounded by does not allow for any talk whatsoever of the devil or of evil. You know, our Western culture has no story to tell in order to make sense of the evil that we see around us. A kind of a social commentator, a guy called Andrew Del Banco, who's a, an intellectual academic, not someone who would call himself a man of faith. But he said this back in the 1990s. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use medical terminology, a moral, sorry, terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that Holocaust and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. Now, he wrote that in 1995, but it still holds true, doesn't it? You know, especially in this moment that we find ourselves in watching the war in Ukraine. And many people are watching and rightly asking, how can one people do that to another? How are people capable of doing that? How can you bomb a theatre knowing that there are children sheltering inside, hiding for their lives? How, as human beings, are we capable of doing these things? 
And as we look at all that is going on in the world around us, I think many people, even if our cultural moment has no answers for this, no story to tell about what is going on here, many people instinctively know that there is a reality of evil, a kingdom of darkness at work that goes way beyond the explanations offered by modern human sciences. You know, as helpful as they are in many ways and what they do tell us about how human beings work, they just don't offer enough. I think many people sense that there is a deeper story going on to what uh, that is unseen. It goes unseen, a war behind the walls that we do see, a battle between good and evil. You know, if you think about it for a second, the vast majority of stories that we love, you know, the great works of fiction that we just love to read, to watch on telly or whatever, they speak of the, that very reality. And that isn't, I don't believe, just because they make for good storytelling, but because I think they instinctively tell us something we know to be true. You know, I have recently had COVID. And in fact, the boys had it too, my kids had it too. So I've spent a lot of time at home in the last few weeks. It's been like our own little Meads lockdown going on. And I love to read. I read all the time. I love novels. I love stories. I read, read, read. But I kind of had that thing that's come with COVID. Many of you, if any of you have had it, will know that kind of COVID brain where my brain is just kind of fuzzy. I'm still feeling it, a bit the effects of it. I'm like, I cannot cope with anything too profound, too big, too difficult or anything like that. So I was like, what am I going to read? Because I don't just want to watch telly all day. It's just... Um, I don't find that that enjoyable. So I was like, what am I going to read? And I thought, I know, I've got it. And I have spent the last few weeks rereading the last few of the Harry Potter books, the last few in this series. And I love those books. They are brilliant books. They are just wonderful. Reading them for me is pure joy. I love them. But what is Harry Potter, if not a story of evil versus good? You know, of light versus darkness. Or Lord of the Rings, or Star Wars, or The Lion King, you know? Many of the greatest stories that have ever been written speak of the reality of evil versus good, that there is a war going on. And this is a reality that we know to be true. Paul, you know, New Testament writer Paul, he says this in Ephesians 6, in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The powers of this dark world. Paul is saying, you know, there's a spiritual battle going on and you want to be ready for it, he's saying, so that you can take your stand. And that's what Jesus is also acknowledging here in the kingdom prayer, in the Lord's prayer, is he basically saying that there is a battle that is going on. And he kind of says here that the battle is both in us and around us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil, but deliver us from the evil one. Firstly, it's in us, you know, lead us not into temptation. This is happening in us. Now, don't be mistaken to think that Jesus is implying here that it is God that tempts us to do wrong things. God doesn't do this. James 1.13 says this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He doesn't tempt us to do wrong things. No, it's the enemy that does the tempting. Just think of when Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days at the beginning um, of, before he starts his ministry. Now this is essentially 40 days of spiritual warfare, where Jesus prays and he fasts and he does battle against the devil. And the the enemy tries to tempt Jesus in every way possible. But Jesus stands firm, just like Paul commands the Ephesians to in the verses we just read. He dresses himself in the armour of God. 
that Paul goes on to describe. And Jesus does not move an inch. And Jesus is saying we should be praying that we, we should also be praying that we would do likewise. So this kind of, this verse is more saying, you know, something a bit more like, kind of, Father, save me from my sinful self, where I might be tempted to partner with the enemy, not with the spirit, to live the way of this world, not the way of Jesus. That's kind of what Jesus is getting at here when he says, lead us not into temptation. This is about the trajectory of our lives. Are we living more like Jesus or are we choosing a, a path away from Jesus? All of us will feel tempted at some point in our lives to fall back, to lean back into old habits of behaving, old ways, well-trodden paths, things like gossiping, addiction, excess, sexual sin, assuming the worst of others, manipulation, lying to get what we want. You fill in the blank into patterns of sin that the Bible describes as like a weed that comes up and just chokes us. It entangles itself around us. And Jesus tells us that when we are tempted in those moments, that we should pray that we would be led not that way, but his way. The way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom. His will be done as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. That like Jesus in the desert, we would stand firm. So the battle is in us. It's not just going on around us. It is in us. But the battle is also going on around us. You know, deliver us from the evil one. As we said, we know this to be true when we look at all that's going on. You know, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, describes the enemy as a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. That's 1 Peter 5, verse 8. So Jesus tells us to pray, to pray that the enemy would save us from ourselves. Uh, sorry, to pray that God would save us from ourselves and save us from the enemy. Prayer is spiritual warfare, a war cry against the work of the enemy and a recentering of our hearts on the things of Jesus, on his kingdom, not the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of this world. So there is a battle between two kingdoms. But this isn't something that should freak us out at all. You know, there's no need to overfocus on the enemy and his kingdom. You know, that can kind of be the downside sometimes of talking about spiritual warfare is that we overfocus on the devil. You know, we give him too much attention that we feel scared. There is no need for this. Why? because the battle belongs to the Lord. So firstly, we are in a battle, and secondly, the battle belongs to the Lord. Jesus has the victory. I just wanna jump back into a story in the Old Testament, if I may, the story um, of Joshua. Now, this may be a familiar story to, to many of you. You know, the, the Israelites, they've been saved from slavery in Egypt. They've been zigzagging around the desert, having a, <laughs> messing it up. Um, and then under the leadership of Joshua, they come to the plains of Jericho and they are camped out um, on these plains. And they, are, they know they have to go and conquer the city of Jericho in front of them. Now, Jericho was a walled city. It was fortified. It was difficult to conquer. And they are camping on these plains, looking at it, thinking, how are we going to do this? Now, if you remember in the story, before they've even started to work out how on earth they're going to break open a walled city like Jericho, the Lord appears to Joshua and he gives him some surprising instructions on how this was going to be done. He tells, uh, tells Joshua they're all going to walk around the city of Jericho for the next seven days. And then after that, the walls would fall and the city would be theirs. And if you read the account, you'll see it was so. The Israelites, they circle the city of Jericho for seven days. But they don't do it with their eyes fixed on the city. No, I mean, if you think about it, if they're walking a circle around the city, their eyes are fixed on the instructions, on the thing in front of them. They are fixed on the Lord and what he has told them to do, not fixed on the city that they're walking around. And of course, this idea of kind of circling prayer 
is a great one. <laughs> this is kind of image obviously fits with the circle prayer challenge that we've been inviting everyone on over Lent. Hopefully you've been doing it. You know, circling our, in our prayers persistently, audaciously, cons uh, persistently, consistently, audaciously for God to break through in one area of your life. And to keep praying until you see that wall broken down. You know, I was having a chat with someone this week who was telling me about, um, about an answer to prayer they'd seen through their circle prayer challenge, how they had put a friend of theirs' name in that circle on that card, if you've seen it. And they put this friend's name on there because this friend was in a difficult point in life and they needed a change moment. You know, for the last couple of years, they'd been stuck in terms of their job and where they were living and everything. And they just needed change. So this person I'd spoken to had put their friend's name on there and they'd started praying for this friend. And I said, this friend had been in this situation for the last couple of years with seemingly no change. And just in this time over Lent um, of this person I was speaking to praying for their friend, this friend now has a new job, is relocating, change has happened in their life. Keep praying, keep persistently praying for the, 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 the prayer that you've got that you would love to see God answer. Keep circling around it, bringing it to the Lord. But do notice this, before the people of Israel had even begun the battle, before they even do one circle of the city, they know that the battle belongs to the Lord. They know that they will be victorious. You know, the Lord, as he appears to them on the plains of Jericho, before they've even started one foot towards the city, he says this. This is what the Lord says to Joshua. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Before they've done anything, God tells them, the battle belongs to me. I've done this. So we are in a spiritual battle. We are circling a city, if you like, praying for a move of God. But we know ultimately that the victory belongs to the Lord. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, overcame the work of the enemy. You know, Jesus tells his disciples this in John 12, 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, that's the devil, will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So, so the prince of this world, Jesus is talking about the devil here. And Jesus is saying basically that his death was going to be the final judgment on the prince of this world, the devil, the enemy, where his death on the cross, the death that he was going to die, it said in verse 33, would be, um, would be a defeat of the enemy. His power would be defeated. Jesus' death on the cross has delivered us from the evil one. Jesus overcame the temptation of the enemy in the desert. He stood firm and then delivered all people from the power of the kingdom of darkness. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. He has delivered us from evil. And the word deliver here used in the Lord's Prayer is the Greek word ryomai. And it has this sense with it, this picture with it of rescuing, saving, dragging out of harm's way. You know, any, any parent here that's, had, uh, that's ever had young children, you'll know that, you know, even with the best parenting in the world, there will be a moment often where one of your children just kind of goes to step out into the road without looking first. You know, I remember my eldest did that once, just took a step out into the road and there was a car coming, not, you know, not super near, it wasn't one of those moments, but was coming down the road. And I just watched as my son went to take a step out of the road. And what did I do? Well, as a parent, I just leaned forward, grabbed whatever I could of him and hauled him back, dragged him out of harm's way. And that's the kind of picture that we get in this Greek word here, deliver us from evil. By Jesus choosing to use it here as he concludes the Lord's Prayer, he is almost putting, I think, in, in, in the uh, disciples' minds, their story of how God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. You know, this story that was key to them as Jews, 
The Lord saved them from slavery in Egypt. He was their deliverer. He grabbed them and rescued them out of harm's way. And then he delivered Jericho into their hands. Likewise, Jesus has saved us from danger. The enemy has been defeated. The kingdom of God of light has overcome the kingdom of darkness. Now, of course, there is a past, present and future reality to the kingdom, to this idea that Jesus is our deliverer. The cross was a breaking in of the future reality that awaits us, where the kingdom of darkness will be no more, where the prince of this world will no longer have any power to tempt or to destroy, where the acts of evil that we see will be no more. And we live in this kind of in-between times of what Jesus did on the cross and then what will happen at the end of the age. So this has both happened and will happen, but it also continues to happen now. We see it in our present reality now. We get to pray and see God's kingdom come now. We get to see the kingdom of darkness push back now in our time. This is what happens every time someone gives their life to Jesus, every time someone is healed, every time the poor are fed, every time the refugee is welcomed, every time an act of injustice is overturned. In short, every time the kingdom of God advances, the kingdom of darkness retreats. The battle has been won. Jesus has the victory. The battle has been won, but it is still ours to fight. We are called to fight. And how do we do this? We do this in prayer with our eyes fixed on Jesus. There is a battle to the battle belongs to the Lord. And then finally, we fight with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Prayer. Prayer is our main spiritual weapon against the kingdom of darkness. Now, this might not feel the case if you've ever been to a boring church prayer meeting. <laughs> I'm sure many of you can relate to that. You know, I remember when I came to faith um, as a teenager, going along to our church, and we used to go to our, our evening service in our church, and I remember there was always a section in the service I went to where they would stand up and there would be a, a time of intercession, of praying for all that was going on in the world. I remember it was always the most boring bit of the service. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but it's true. It would be like a recap of the news stories. There would be a moment when it would just be this kind of like listing everything that was going on and then just like, God, make it all better. You know, feed everyone that's hungry. Give every orphan a home to go to. Make it all okay, Lord. Amen. Now, I don't want to belittle the heart behind those prayers. Of course, we should pray for these things. But the prayers... At that moment, they felt rather kind of impotent. I'm not sure anyone really believed God was going to answer them. I don't think anyone praying those prayers in that evening service really felt like as they left at 7.30 that everything would be perfect and restored. And I think it's because if prayers aren't seen as a spiritual weapon, if we're not aware of the context that's going on that we cannot see, if we don't understand that we are doing battle when we pray, prayers can just feel ineffective and insincere. So we don't end up doing them at all. Martin Luther says this, he who prays is fighting against the devil. The best thing we can do, therefore, is to put our fists together and to pray. And that's basically what Paul says here too. Let's get back into Ephesians 6. So Paul, he's established that there is this spiritual battle going on. And he talks about putting on the armour of God, you know, the kind of things we should have in our discipleship to Jesus that put us on, that help us to stand firm in the spiritual battle. These are the kind of things that Jesus had in place in his life that helped him then stand firm in the desert. And then Paul, in his final kind of climax of the argument he's making here, says this, verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray, 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 is what Paul says. Be alert and keep on praying, um, he says in verse 18. Keep praying for what? Well, for each other, for the mission, Paul says, that I'm on. Basically, in short, keep praying the prayer that Jesus taught, taught, taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be alert and keep on praying. And that's the same instruction that Jesus gave his disciples on the night when he knew he was about to be arrested and ultimately crucified. He was aware of the spiritual battle that awaited him. Um, over the next few hours. And he says to his disciples, Jesus says, you know, stay awake, stay alert and pray for me as I go into this battle. Stand and pray with me. Stand firm. What do the disciples do? They fall asleep. They don't pray. They're not alert. They don't realise the spiritual battle that is going on. They can't see it. And they doze off. They fall asleep. I wonder if we in the church are in danger of doing the same thing, of falling asleep of not seeing the battle that is going on that is unseen. And so instead, you know, of using prayer as a weapon in spiritual battle, instead of praying for his kingdom to come, instead of praying for a defeat of the kingdom of the enemy, we doze off, we nod off, we fall asleep on the job. As I quoted at the start, the devil likes to limit our prayers because he knows our prayers limit him. Let's not fall asleep on the job here. Let's be a people of prayer, people that live a life of prayer. Let's be praying for his kingdom to come. I and mean, this is a time to be praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, we want to see your kingdom advance. We want to see the kingdom of darkness retreat. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. <laughs>